Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. He's regarded in American history as one of the best. He's studied and celebrated across the world as a genius. He's yet another Mississippian who's left a large footprint in the pages of history. Oh, another point. How many of our Mississippi Magic episodes have included subjects with the name James or growing up poor or or even had roots in the railroad industry? Well, guess what? He did not grow up poor. His name was not Jim or James, but he did have some ties to the railroad industry. And another point that needs to be mentioned. Very little new could be written about this famous Mississippian that hasn't already been put in numerous books and documentaries. This episode of Mississippi Magic is not to do that. It's to bring his memory back into your space for at least a few seconds. Maybe even spark the curious minds of those who don't know him or know much about him to do some research. And I hope we do that right after this from the people who make this possible. Our good friends at Divinity Equipment. Did you know that the number one selling subcompact tractor in the United States of America for over 10 years is the BX Series Do-It-All Tractor from Kubota. There's good reason for that. Dependability and comfort from the construction to the -the state-of-the-art technology. Right now at the nation's oldest Kubota dealer, the BX Series number one selling tractor is yours for as low as $99 per month. Plus, no payment for 90 days. No matter where you live in Mississippi, nobody has the inventory, the service, or the prices that you'll find at Divinity Equipment. Check it out yourself at Divinity Equipment or their Facebook page. When you're ready to bring it home, come by Divinity Equipment, either location, Highway 51 North in Madison or Divinity Drive in Jackson. Now back to this episode of Mississippi Magic titled, Right from the Heart. He was afforded the finer things in life. A Mississippi kid who didn't grow up poor, but he did grow up with train tracks in his family. His grandfather could boast to his four grandsons that for Christmas, he wouldn't just let them have a train set. He would get them as many rides as they wanted on a real train. The one he owned when he was celebrating his first birthday. The family heeded the call from their grandfather for Murray, the son, to come work in the front office as the company's accountant. His dad was delighted as he picked up his family and moved to another quaint small Mississippi town where the railroad office was located. As time went on, Gramps grew more disenchanted with his son's abilities and expectations that he could run the railroad. He thought Murray, his son, was book smart but just didn't have the faith in him to compete in an industry that needed a man who was street smart and tough as steel. On a solemn day in Mississippi, a day when Murray was informed that his own father had little faith in his leadership, so much so that he sold the entire company for $75,000. Yes, it was a handsome sum back then, but it destroyed the relationship and Murray's confidence. Needless to say, the next few weeks were life-changing to the family. Murray planned a new start, go west, young man, to Texas, buy a ranch, forget about the rejections of his own father to show such a lack of trust as to sell his future and the future of his grandkids right from under him. The move to Texas seemed plausible to everybody, everyone, except Murray's wife. She put on the brakes quickly, and when the screech of the wheels of the track finally ground to a halt, Murray and his four sons found themselves not 800 miles away in Texas, 
but 51 miles away in another Mississippi town where Gramps owned several businesses. There the family lived their lives out as the little town grew rapidly around them. Not hurting for money, the siblings all had the comfort of good educations, loving parents, a grandmother, and an African-American nanny who basically raised them from infancy. Life wasn't all that bad for them. Dad taught them the outdoors, and while their mom and grandmom instilled the love of reading at a very early age, it's important here to mention the nanny. Most historians agree when they studied him later on that his preoccupation with, quote, the politics of sexuality and race may have been the major influence of Caroline, the nanny, who was as much a part of the family as his mother and father. Later, the Mississippi kid would admit that her influence in his life was more than anyone else and acknowledge that her influence was woven through the very fabric of his life's work. Maybe it was that love of reading that catapulted him from the first grade to the third grade. And he showed lots of promise in the fourth. After that, maybe it was the ADD that kicked in, or just a mind so creative that the tasks at hand were mundane. He grew quiet and withdrawn. He skipped school quite often and was totally uninterested in most of his subjects. There was one. Around seven years old, one subject seemed to spark an ember that continued to grow brighter. It was the subject of Mississippi history. He was fascinated by the state's past. The more he learned, the brighter that ember grew. He soaked in the Civil War, the trials and tribulations of slavery, the white knights of the Klan, and even the history of his great-grandfather, a famous man whose exploits were legendary. At 17, he was more convinced that putting these stories down on paper for all mankind to share was what he wanted to do. And that he did. In writing, he found a peace and an excitement that released the world around him. When he wrote, his mind took him to another dimension that was totally insulated from the present. He liked it there. Now in college, he shared his early works with a family friend who graduated several years earlier from the same university. That friend was the first to recognize the talent and potential of a young student. After being encouraged by a friend to seek publication of his poetry, the euphoria of possibilities turned to the realities of rejection. That said, it didn't deter his need and desire to write. As time went by, he found some success from the poems when they were published in the campus newspaper. So he continued to create poetry before an idea for a novel came to mind. An idea so strong that he dove in with all his energy. Then, after three semesters, the budding author moved on to complete the novel. Unfortunately, like the poems, they also were rejected by the publisher. But unlike the poems, that news was devastating to his ego and his confidence. To salvage any hope of making money as a writer, he permitted his literary agent to edit the manuscript, a painful decision that didn't help his confidence. It was a storm of mixed emotions when he was notified that his novel was accepted and would be published after it was edited by someone else. By the time he reached 31 years old, he also reached a new mindset, one attained by a growing dislike for publishers and even the public's taste in literary works. It was a defining moment in his life, a moment where he knew, unquestionably, that to succeed, he must write from the heart. He would later say, quote, One day, I seemed to shut the door between me and all publishers' addresses and book lists. And I said to myself, now I can write. In an interview in the Paris Review, 1956, he said, Let the writer take up surgery or bricklaying if he's interested in technique. There is no mechanical way to get the writing done, no shortcut. The young writer would be a fool to follow a theory. Teach yourself by your own mistakes. People learn only by error. 
The good artist believes that nobody is good enough to give him advice. He has supreme vanity. No matter how much he admires the old writer, he wants to beat him. <laughs> he took his own advice, and he had great reason to do so. He got married to longtime sweetheart, honeymooned in Pascagoula, returned home to later acquire a mortgage, and a bit later, a daughter. He wrote a novel about things he knew about, things he grew up around, and he did it in a style that was so original and captivating that it, in turn, captivated the reader. He did short stories and mailed them out to as many publications as he could get addresses for. Some published his works, but it was far from supporting a family. History shows that in 1932, the amount of money going out was far more than coming in. And then one day, a letter arrived with a request. Seems some bigwigs in Hollywood read some of the short stories and thought he had the making of a screenwriter. Well, the Mississippi kid knew more about hog farming than Hollywood. But with the need for money paramount, he answered the call from MGM Studios. For almost two decades, he worked for the studios, all the time feeling out of place in a land of make-believe. The letters he wrote reflected his negative reviews of Hollywood, the industry itself, and its people. The one thing he did find more fulfilling in Tinseltown was to escape with a few close friends who shared his love of a good hunt and a good whiskey. That said, history records he never imbibed while writing. He wrote 13 novels and a host of short stories. His novels are recognized as golden treasures, harvesting just about every possible award a writer could get. That celebrated author who returned home from his Mississippi Gulf Coast honeymoon and bought his new bride an old antebellum home called the Bailey Place, once owned by Colonel Robert Shegog, an Irish immigrant farmer from Tennessee, a home that remained empty and vacant of life for over seven years before a new homeowner named Will moved in. Soon after that, he changed the name to reflect a tree on the property that had weathered the storms of Mississippi's past. An oak tree, but not just any oak tree. It was a rowan oak, the home of Will. William Faulkner. Over the decades, it's become a shrine for one of the most celebrated writers in American history, a tourist attraction that's drawn literally tens of thousands of visitors from across the world. The writer who decided to do it his way, to write from the heart, to ignore what the publishers were telling him about what the market wanted, and in doing so, he changed his life and the world of literature. William Faulkner's outstanding writing style has been studied and celebrated the world over. Just to hear his voice again reciting a few lines from one of his epic novels, As I Lay Dying, is most energizing to any aspiring writer. It's a hard life on women for a fact. Some women, I mind my mammy lived to be 70 and more, worked every day, rain or shine, never a sick day since her last chap was born, until one day she kind of looked around her, and then she went and taken that lace trim nightgown she had had for 45 years and never wore out of the chest, and put it on and laid down on the bed and pull the covers up and shut her eyes. You all will have to look out for Paul the best you can, she said. I'm tired. Among his many lifetime awards in 1949 at the age of 52, William Faulkner from Oxford, Mississippi won the Nobel Prize. He later addressed the world with an acceptance speech. Our tragedy today is a general and universal physical fear so long sustained by now that we can even bear it. They are no longer problems of the spirit. There is only the question, when will I be blown up? Because of this, the young man or woman writing today has forgotten the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself, which alone can make good writing because only that is worth writing about, worth the agony and the sweat. 
Born in New Albany, moved to Ripley, and settled in Oxford, William Faulkner is yet another example of how so many fellow Mississippians have left behind for the world to enjoy a bit of Mississippi magic. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.